0: Last week, uh, we really started our Christmas series, but I'll admit we did not at that time, or I did not at that time, really have a clear vision for what we wanted to accomplish or what our goal was or what we were trying to achieve uh, with that particular message. I introduced our message with the idea of how do we worship at Christmas with an empty chair. That's a difficult Um, subject to approach, and it's not one that I think people look forward to approaching when we're supposed to be coming into a season of joy and thanksgiving and praise and hope. But I think an empty chair also encapsulates all of those themes. The past two years, our church has experienced a substantial amount of loss. There are people that will not be able to sit around our tables this Christmas season. There will be empty chairs. I want you to understand that an empty chair at Christmas time can be more reflective than just a loved one that has passed away. It can be a reminder of students who have taken off, or our children who have taken off to go into the world and are away at college or even beginning their own lives. They have their own home to care for, and so there is an empty chair where they once sat in our dining spaces. The idea of an empty chair isn't something that is new to our faith. As a matter of fact, you won't find this in the Bible, but according to Jewish tradition, the empty chair was an important symbol at the Seder dinner. That is, that when Jews would observe the Passover, they would make sure that they would leave an empty chair and it was a reminder that at any point, the prophet Elijah could come and sit down And the prophet Elijah, according to Malachi, was foretold to be the forerunner for Christ. That means before the advent, as the Jews were expectantly waiting for Jesus Christ to come into this world, they waited first for a prophet to come and proclaim to them that he was preparing the way for his arrival. We know that fulfillment of prophecy took place in the ministry of John the Baptist, introduced at the beginning of several of the Gospels, as John came in the wilderness in the spirit of Elijah, preparing a way for our Lord. And even today, the church who knows that the forerunner has come, that the first advent has taken place, I believe we are at present waiting for the prophet Elijah to return to announce The coming of our Lord and Savior a second time. That empty chair, while it is a reminder of those who have gone off on their own way, is also an expectant reminder for a hope that lays before us in the future. That is, for Christians, sitting around with an empty chair, we are able to celebrate that loved ones who have gone before us Children that have gone off and started their own lives. These are things to celebrate. Those who have passed away, we celebrate that they are experiencing the glories of heaven and celebrating Christmas in a way that we could only dream would be possible. But what does that empty chair mean? The struggle that we face while we are here on earth is the conflict that takes place in our own mind. Wouldn't we like to call back those loved ones so that they could sit with us again? Wouldn't it be great if teleportation were real and our children could sit with us, maybe not every evening, but regularly? Travel wasn't an issue. Weather was no barricade. Don't we wish we could fill those empty chairs? At the same time, we know that it is right and it is good that our loved ones are away from us for this time. So why are we still here? Why can't we simply be with them? I struggle with this, as I think most people my age do. Why, if we have been saved and redeemed in God, do we have to wait to be reunited with Him? Some of you are looking at me like I'm about to give a cult speech. Don't worry, there is no Kool-Aid that I'm aware of in the back. What I would like to teach... And what I would like us to glean this morning is that very purpose. The reason the church remains here. Because we do have a purpose. That empty chair is not just a reminder of someone that cannot sit there. It's a reminder that beyond our walls, beyond our communities, beyond our homes, there are people that need to sit there. The church has work to do today in seeking out the lost, that they might come and fill that seat so that one day when that empty chair is our place, the ministry of the kingdom can carry on until the day that Elijah comes to take his place. For that reason, we have been looking at the three parables in Luke chapter 15 where Jesus teaches on the lost things. This morning, we'll look at the shortest of these three parables, looking at Luke 15, verse 8 through verse 10, at the parable of the lost coin. I'd like to read it before we begin, but before we do that, let us pray that we might have insight from the Spirit. Father in heaven, thank you for this time this morning, the ministries of this church. Thank you for this family that you have called together in Christ's name, for these Sons and daughters that have been adopted, for those that have been purchased by your blood that was shed for us at Calvary. Father, grant us insight this morning that we might be sensitive to the Spirit, that we might understand your word and be able to apply it to our lives. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might be able to behold the wondrous truth found in your law. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The Bible says, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 15 in Luke, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When we allow our worldview to be shaped by what the Bible teaches us, we call that a biblical worldview. It changes the way that we look at the world. It changes the way that we interact with the world. And it changes the way that we think about the things going on around us. One of those examples is death. I said a moment ago that we celebrate that our loved ones are able to relish in the glory of heaven, experiencing the season in a way that we could only dream of. If you're not a Christian, that will sound strange to you. that we can celebrate death. I tell you, friends, this is the truth. If someone has professed their faith in God, we'd rejoice. At the passing of a loved one. This divine perspective enables the Christian to interact with their world in a uniquely Christian way. I have three points this morning that I want to draw out of our text, and that is that this divine perspective that Jesus is giving to us in his parable reshapes and reorders what we would consider to be precious. It reshapes and reorders what we would consider to be our priority. And ultimately, it reshapes and reorders what we consider to be praiseworthy. So first, I say that a divine perspective reorders what we consider to be precious. Jesus is teaching in a parable. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And we find in verse 8 that this woman has lost 10 silver coins. She has 10 silver, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. She has 10 silver coins and she's lost one coin. This is escalating from what we looked at last week. Remember last week we looked at the shepherd who, having 100 sheep, lost one, left the 99 to go after the one. So now he's gone after one in 100, but now the woman goes after one in 10. He's escalating how precious this lost thing is. He's escalating what it means to value and to think that something is precious. Little things and little moments can possess exceptional preciousness. As, as we're approaching the Christmas season, I uh, was speaking with Luann before I got up here. She was sharing with me that we still have some Christmas shopping to do. We do, too. We've put it off until the last minute. And so Amazon's now out of the question, I think. I think we're going to have to do the in-person shopping, which means fighting with everyone else. And I think about these gifts, and I want to give a gift that is precious and meaningful. And I want to give something that's special. I want to be a good gift giver. I'm just not. So I ask, what is precious? What is it that makes something precious? Last night, I got a text message from my brother. He hasn't kept any of the Christmas gifts I've given him in the past five years. But six years ago and seven years ago, I tried really hard. I, I drew a a picture of a family crest. And at the time, I was trying to redefine myself. I was trying to redefine where I had come from. And and so some of this was therapeutic for me. But I was trying to define who I wanted to be and what I wanted my family name to mean. I drew this, and I had this image inscribed on three watches for my three brothers. And he kept them. Following year, I think I did the same thing with a deck of cards. You don't kick me out of the church, Baptist. I know some of you'd like to, but I did. I put it on a deck of cards. He hasn't kept every gift that I've given him, but he has kept that. That little insignia, that little intentionality made that gift precious. It made it more valuable than everything I've given him between that time and this time. Because it meant something more than just a thing. So we're decorating our Christmas trees and we're pulling out ornaments. We know that some ornaments are more precious than others, aren't they? My grandma has with three, some of you probably have them too, but with three clothespins glued together in the shape of a reindeer with a red nose on the front. And the kids' names written in Sharpie marker along the side of them with dates from 1975. And and she clips those on her tree every year, and I know those are her favorite ornaments. There's prettier ornaments on the tree, but those are the most precious. It's not just things that become precious, though, it's moments. Small little moments in time that carry more meaning than we could ever possibly expect. And what I've learned in all of my years of experience, you never know which moment is going to be the precious one. I asked Michelle last night if there was a moment that was particularly precious to her. And she told me about when she had first given birth to Charlotte the first shower that she took at the hospital. Her mom helped her in the shower. And afterwards, she sat on the bed and braided her hair. An insignificant moment, a fleeting moment, simply something that needed to be done that is a precious moment that Michelle hangs on to today. We have precious memories associated with things and times. How many of you cherish your wedding bands? I cherish mine, even though it's lost. Incidentally, William Barclay is connected that the 10 coins that this woman had may have been a symbol of her marriage. What he says is that ten coins stranded together in a loop would be like a, a modern tiara tiara that a woman would be able to wear and put on her head and it would be a symbol that this woman was married which explains why in this parable in verse 8 it begins or what woman? Because I'm reading this and I'm thinking why does it have to be a woman? If I lost ten coins I'd go after one too. But this makes sense. These aren't just ten coins. They're precious. They're tied to a memory. They're tied to something bigger than what we have. An empty chair at the table reorders what we consider to be precious. The presents under our trees are far less precious than the moments that we have with our families decorating cookies. The meal on the table matters far less than the conversations with the people sitting across from us. The truly precious things in this world have eternal value. It will not matter if we can make our friends laugh at our jokes. It will not matter that we had a pleasant visit. Nothing will matter if we do not have eternity to look forward to with our loved ones. The issue in our text is not caring for the things that we currently have or that we currently possess. Instead, it's how do we regard the lost things. Notice in verse 8, our text says she lost one coin. When the woman lost her coin, it did not stop to be her coin. I have a wedding ring. I've lost it. It's still my wedding ring, right? In the same way, to say that the lost still exist in this world is to acknowledge that the lost belong to God. You cannot lose something that you never had. And if you'd like to disagree with me on that point, I would ask that you sincerely take up that rebuttal. And to prove me wrong, please find my 1986 XJ6. I've misplaced it. You cannot lose something that you never had. The things that are lost to God are already claimed by Him. They already belong to Him. From the stories that I have heard and from what I have experienced in my own life, the empty chair can often remind us of unreconciled tension. Whether in families or in friendship, unresolved issues often cause people to drift apart. And this is the hard pill to swallow. The empty chair at our table is not always a reminder that someone has passed away or that someone has passed on to a new time in their life. Sometimes it is simply a reminder that a friendship has lost its intimacy. When the woman lost her coin... It was precious enough for her to seek after. Can I tell you something that irritates me about older folks? This might be the wrong audience to make this confession. The generations that have gone before me seem committed to sweeping problems under the rug. Do you know why that irritates me? There's a cycle that I've seen in my short time here on earth that seems to repeat itself without any variation whenever we refuse to solve our problems together. The cycle seems to be that a circumstance presents itself, it goes unaddressed, and because it's gone addressed, tension is present when we try to meet with a person. Neither person wanting to address the issue endures that tension, but remembers how uncomfortable it was. And eventually, that tension turns into avoidance. Once that tension's turned into avoidance, it's not long before that relationship doesn't exist at all. I realize that there are some people that are committed to sweeping problems under the rug and not addressing them. Can I tell you that that's not only unbiblical? It doesn't Line up with what I've experienced as an effective way to have good relationships. Matthew 18, 15. Jesus taught, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Jesus did not tell us to be passive in resolving our problems. Jesus did not teach us to wait until our brother or sister realized their sin. He expects us to go to that person and be a part of exposing that sin. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus taught again. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus did not teach us to wait until we were confronted to resolve our issues. He told us to play an active part in it. Biblically, avoiding problems doesn't line up. And my experience doesn't say that it lines up leaving difficult situations unresolved, dissolves and damages our relationships. Left alone long enough, and the entire relationship may be lost. What is it that Jesus is teaching the Pharisees in this parable? And as we look at this text, He's teaching not only the Pharisees, but the crowds around Him, that to God, the lost things are precious. The lost sheep is precious. The lost coin is precious. Yes, I may have 99 other friends, but that one friend is worth it. I may have nine other coins, but that one coin still matters. As we look at the conflict that begins to develop at the beginning of this chapter, what Jesus is teaching the Pharisees is that these tax collectors and sinners that are drawing near to Him are precious to Him. It could just as easily be a lost relationship. It could just as easily be a lost relationship in our lives. Listen to me, loved ones those who have lost people, those who have children away at college who are dealing with the day-to-day pain of not seeing their children. It's not right for you to try and move backwards in time. It is right for you to try and resolve things that have broken. Reconciliation, forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. It's the very beginning of God's interaction with us and we should pursue it even in our relationships that have fallen apart because those people are precious to God. Do you see how a divine perspective reorders what we consider to be precious? My second point is that a divine perspective reorders what we consider to be a priority Defined perspective certainly gives us a view into what we consider to be precious, but it also reorders what we consider to be a priority. I hinted at this a moment ago, developing a wrong sense of what develops and cares for relationships today. If you turn to TikTok or Instagram or any of these sites or social media sites, you'll find people who are making entire careers out of teaching and corporate settings and groups of people, how they can be better communicators and how they can influence people more effectively and how they can simply make more friends. It turns out it's a, it's a necessary market for people that have grown up with social media in their laps because they haven't learned how to make friends the normal way. Sorry if I'm showing my age, but that's the truth. Why do we need to know how to take care of our relationships? Because some of us have been taught that being agreeable is necessary to make friends. I think being agreeable is an attractive trait, but it's not necessarily a relationship-building trait. Being agreeable makes quick friends, but ultimately it shrouds a person's true personality. It prevents people from knowing the real you. We should not be agreeable and sacrifice our truth, who we are. Our aim also should not be to be contradictory or argumentative. Neither of these is the goal. Rather, it lies somewhere in the middle, agreeing where we agree and holding to the sincerity of our convictions and engaging in good, contending dialogue with our friends. Some of us have been taught in order to make friends, it is important that we're entertaining. Not only that we would be agreeable, but that we'd be entertaining, easy to talk to. I get it. It's more fun to talk with someone who carries on the conversation by themselves. Or someone that has a broad range of interests so that they can be interested in any topic. But can I tell you, if your goal is to be entertaining, you're not truly opening yourself up either. The reality is that sincerity goes further than entertainment ever can. I would rather talk with someone who listens and reflects before they respond than someone that has a seemingly never-ending trail of dad jokes and quips. You know what's more important than being the center of attention? Simply not zoning out while someone is talking. I'm speaking to some of you because halfway through my sermon, this is the point where some of you start to zone off. I think what the Bible teaches us is that the priority in developing relationships is sincerity and concern are the two major traits that allow us to care for and create new relationships. Each of these is found in our text. The woman, after losing this coin, she begins to seek after this lost coin. And what does she do? First, she lights a lamp and she sweeps the house and then she seeks diligently until she finds it. Sincerity and concern. I might be reading into the text a little bit here. This might be a little bit of, well, I don't think it's eisegesis, but I don't think it's the main point of the text. So take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. The image of light is a major theme in John's Gospels that carries through the rest of the Bible pretty well. Luke comments on Jesus' teaching when he says that she lit a lamp. You know what I think it means to light a lamp? I think it means to be sincere. You see, light exposes truth. Authenticity reveals our truth and it allows people to feel comfortable in our presence. Light removes awkwardness. Most awkwardness in conversations stem from not knowing what to say next. When we focus on others and ask questions instead of adding to what they've said or trying to one-up their stories... We dive deeper into our relationship with them. Darkness ultimately makes people feel on guard because they have to protect themselves from the shadows. So does a lack of openness. In this way, light in our conversations is essential to healthy relationships. We should reprioritize our methods of caring for our relationships by focusing just on sincerity in Matthew's gospel, Matthew five sixteen, Jesus taught, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who art in heaven. Do you know why I mentioned agreeableness and being entertaining as false ways to make friends and develop friendships? Because many Christians will sacrifice the truth of the gospel before their family and relatives so that they don't start conflict. If you need to fight over something or disagree over something, by all means make it something that matters like what the gospel is. It doesn't matter how much we entertain our family and friends, how much we spend time with them, how pleasant it is. If someday comes that they we will be at their funeral and have no expectant hope that we will see them in heaven. The truth of the gospel is what carries forward, and if we are sincerely convicted of the belief that brings Christians into the family of God, it should be evident in every conversation that we have, even with the people that are already saved. Because do you know what saved people like to talk about? Heaven, Jesus, time and eternity. That's what saved people like to talk about. When my friends come over to my house, it's funny. Michelle says that I keep becoming more and more of a preacher. Not because my preaching is getting any better. You all know that. But because I can't help it. Every conversation that is important to me is tied back to what my Jesus has done for me. This should be the same for each one of us. This is our light, and this is our truth, and we must allow it to shine in every conversation that we have. Now, I said sincerity was just one part of the biblical instruction for managing our friendships. The second one is concern. And maybe this is where we're lacking. In sweeping the house and searching carefully, the woman demonstrated that she prioritized the lost coin. Today, the church shows that it is concerned for the lost in its constant engagement in seeking the salvation of the lost. Not in sitting around and doing what we've always done. Not in being comfortable where we've always been, with the people we've always seen, but celebrating and getting excited about new faces by simply imagining what God has the ability to do in the life of the lost. In Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus taught that the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world, starting with our witness in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and out to the outermost parts of the world. Would you like to know something that concerns me? Actually, don't answer that because I think most of you would say no because you know that there's food in the back. I'll tell you anyway, I believe the church is more focused on the outer parts of the world than our own Jerusalem. Jesus gave the church a priority order of how the kingdom would expand. It does not start in the outer parts of the world, it starts in our homes, it extends to our neighbors and then it extends to the world we must focus on where we are at first we must first sweep the house and get ourselves in order then we can begin to focus on samaria on our neighbors on our new friends and this is the picture that i'm trying to paint for us our relationships with one another is precious is that plural our relationships our relationships with one another are precious We should care for the ones that we have broken. We should try to repair those. Get our house in order. Then we can begin to focus on our neighbors and the lost. Then we can begin to focus on those who are beyond us. Do you know what happens to the rest of the outer world when we've done that? Do you know that a sociologist, I can't remember when, I can't cite the study, so you'll have to look it up on your own, said that if you take any two random persons living on earth right now, you would only have to go three relationships deep to find a connection between those two people. That's saying, all of you, I know you personally, you're all my friends. I have some friends that you don't know. You have some friends that I don't know. The friends of yours that I don't know, that's two relationships deep. If I went one more deep, the whole world would be connected. You know, God's plan's a lot better than ours. I'm amazed at the emails that I get week to week from these ministries that have the plans in order, you know, the grow your church plans and everything else. It turns out God's plan's really simple. If Christians would take the time necessary to care for the relationships that are already there around them, focus on forgiveness, have meaningful conversations, instead of shrouding themselves in diplomacy, open themselves up to sincerity, do you know what would happen? The whole world would be reached. We deceive ourselves into thinking that it is easier to reach the outermost. The reality is, without taking care of those closest to us, it is impossible to reach the outermost. My third point is my shortest. I said that this divine perspective reshapes what we consider to be precious. It reorders our priorities. Finally, it shows us what is truly praiseworthy, we look at verse 9 and verse 10, God comes together, this woman, after finding the coin, she calls out to all of her friends and she says, come rejoice with me for I have found the lost coin. Jesus begins to explain this. He says in verse 10, just so. Just like this earthly story gives you an example of someone celebrating over their lost coin. This is what it's like in heaven. He says, just so, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. Just in case any of you were confused, a coin does not have the ability to repent, but when we're talking about lost people, there is a human responsibility. There is a human responsibility to respond to God through what we call repentance. Repentance simply means turning away from our lost life And following after God. It means changing direction. Isn't it marvelous to think of God rejoicing? We gather together at church and we sing songs and certainly we rejoice. We sing angels we have heard on high. We think about how much we have to rejoice for that our Savior made himself a man. That he could dwell among us. God rejoices too. What a marvelous thought. God is personable. He reveals Himself to us in the same way that He's calling us to reveal ourselves to others. He's given us 66 books that we can hold in hand that we would understand His heart, filled with anthropomorphisms of God that we might understand His personal nature. We must think of Him as a person. Isaiah 62, verse 5, God says, For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall your sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. God rejoices over the lost. He rejoices over you. He rejoices over His chosen. You know what's praiseworthy? God and our relationship to Him. It all comes back to relationships all the way back in the garden. When God said that He created man in the image of God, it is a picture of the relationship that exists between man and God. Don't think for a moment that you look like God. You look like Jesus Christ because He was made in the form of man, but ultimately the Father has no form. You know why you are made in the image of God? Because unlike the rest of creation, you have a relationship with your Creator. He's given you dominion over all of creation. And He has said that you should have a relationship with one another. You know how easy it is to overlook the fact that God said something wasn't good before the fall? After saying, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Genesis chapter 2, verse 13, God says, it is not good that man should be alone. Isn't it interesting that that same thread gets pulled all the way through those 66 books so that we can read in Jesus' reproof of the Pharisees that His mission on earth is to seek and to save the lost. That one lost coin matters because God rejoices over that one lost thing that doesn't turn to Him. Jesus calls us into repentance because the church should be praising repentance. A lot is revealed about our commitment to Christ by what we consider to be praiseworthy. Do we praise what God praises? Or have we fallen into the error? of defining what God should think is praiseworthy. We should pray earnestly that our desires would be God's desires, that our mind would be like God's mind, that we should seek Him and let Him set out our path. I would like to have a nice conclusion to tie all of this together. Three thoughts, where are they connected and how are they related to this empty chair at Christmas? That empty chair is a reminder that there's someone out in this world that's valuable and precious to God and that God is planning to use you. You're not going to save someone, God will, but if someone is lost, He can use you through openness, sincerity, and real concern to bring someone to the light. If you take care of those relationships that you already have, God will extend the blessing of the kingdom from your simple act of faithfulness, from one person to the outermost parts of the world. Nothing is more praiseworthy than that. So since I can't come up with a good conclusion, let us read... Psalm 37, verses 3 through 7. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning thankful for your truth, recognizing Our failures and asking Lord not just that you would help us to repent of not prioritizing our life the way that you have but giving us the desires of our heart Lord we recognize that some of those desires do not come from you but they come from us and so we read the promise that if we delight ourselves in you These desires will follow. So God, I ask that you would be my one thought, my one mission, as I minister to those closest to me this holiday season. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.